Start a new journey here in the book of Hebrews. This morning we are in chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Sermon entitled, We See Jesus. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. Hear then the word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, uh, of the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Word of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you even as we have gathered this morning as your people. What a privilege it is to be here, to be together, to be in your presence, to give you our hearts in worship and that you would accept it, that you would accept us, that you would hear us, that you would come near to us. And even now we ask, that you would come near in the preaching of your word, that you would speak to us, that you would open your word to our hearts, that you would allow us to see Jesus crowned with glory and honor in such a way that it would change our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> at the heart of this text, you'll see, at least in my Bible, there's a, at the heart of this text is, is the heart of Psalm 8. There's a couple of verses set apart like poetry that uh, quote from Psalm chapter 8. It sits here in the middle uh, is the heart of this verse. It's written by David. This is a psalm of David that he wrote some 3,000 years ago. You can imagine uh, David lying in a field somewhere. He was a shepherd, uh, did some of his music making, I imagine, uh, out there on his own watching over sheep, but you can imagine him perhaps lying in a field 3,000 years ago looking at the sky. You can imagine no ambient light, no cities nearby, and I don't know if you've ever been so far away from a city uh, that, that there's no ambient light and how many stars you can see. Like the sky is literally full of stars. You can't see in a place like this, you can only see the brightest of them, but you can imagine him against the dark universe, this vast starry host that he's looking at, the expanse and the beauty of it, and he's filled with awe, and it triggers two paradoxical uh, thoughts in him. The experience of human smallness and the wonder of human significance. In Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, just before what's quoted here this morning, he says, I, When I look at your heavens and at the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Right? Those two parallel ideas of human smallness and the vastness of the universe, and yet the significance that God is mindful of us. As vast as the universe is, it is interesting. You can lay there and you can be awed by it and its beauty and its, in some ways its power to move us. And, but when we're looking at it, one thing that we realize is that it is a cold, unliving thing. It's not alive. 
There's no life in it. It, it is a bunch of inanimate objects uh, in, the, in the universe. They're not, there's nothing out there in the, the stars or the moon or the planets or meteors or anything else that bears the image of God. They're the work of his fingertips. He has created them, and they have a glory to them, but they do not know the God who made them. They do not bear his image. And so Psalm 8 declares, you and I were created, and this Psalm 8 is celebrating the creation of man, and he says, you and I were created a little lower than the angels, and we've been given dominion over all of creation. After these verses, the rest of Psalm 8 goes on to list all the areas of dominion that God has given us, that he has given us dominion over the earth and the fish and the animals and the sea, and, and, and that there is this glory that he's given us a little lower than the angels and given dominion as God's vice regents on the earth. And so in these few verses here, the the author in these just four or five verses talks about the the creation, uh, the glory of what God has made in both the heavens and in in the human beings, uh, the fall, and then he's going to move in to talk about uh, the incarnation of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, the exaltation, the kingly reign of Christ, all crammed into these verses. He doesn't explain any of them. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't, He's not unpacking these ideas for them. He is talking to them about things he thinks they already understand, that they should already know. This is information that they've already been taught. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 12, it's going to say, the author is going to say, by this time you ought to be teachers. The author's concern is not that they don't know these things, because they already know all this, just as you and I already, in many ways, already know these things doctrine, so to speak. So his concern isn't that they don't know them. His concern is what Thad talked about last week, starting in verse 1, that they need to pay much closer attention to what they've heard, lest they drift away. It's not that they haven't heard it, but they need to pay much closer attention. They need to have it in front of them. They need to, to know it in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls. They need it to impact who they are, the power of the truth, impacting the way that they think and the way that they live, lest they drift away. The author's concern is drift. And this is always the concern. It's, it's the concern for all of us in this room, or it should be. You should live in fear. In the best sense of that word, in fear of drift. That we're not paying close attention, and this happens to me, so I'm going to imagine it happens to you, that there are times I pay more closer attention than I do at other times. There are seasons that are drier, seasons that are harder, seasons that are busier, and it's easy to get distracted. And the author's concern here, like it should be for all of us in this room, is that we know so much truth. Many of us could be teachers Many of us in this room are in some sense. But knowing the truth is not the same as experiencing the power of that truth. Right? And then living in the transforming, life-changing, life-shaping power of that truth. That we would follow Jesus and be more and more like Christ. 
he talks not just as drifting away, there's this temptation to take our eyes off Jesus, which is in this text and throughout the book of Hebrews, a temptation for us to take our eyes off of Jesus, to drift away, as he says in chapter 3, verse 13, that we'll get to in the coming weeks, where he talks about hearts that have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That when our eyes are off of Jesus and we begin to drift, we don't stay static, but our hearts become harder and harder to the things of God. It's possible to know the truth in our heads while at the same time drifting off course and having our hearts slowly growing hard. The author says we need to see Jesus. We need to see Him crowned with glory and honor, reigning over His church, reigning over His people, King in our hearts and in our souls. So he starts out with the glory of Adam's creation, Adam and Eve, of human creation, uh, and our fall. And that's where this quote from Psalm chapter 8, which celebrates that and goes over it. Um, And as we bump into this, we need to point out that the verses that Thad covered last week, verses 1 to 4, are a parenthesis in what he is saying. uh, That really, verse 5 here, where we're starting this morning, picks up where chapter 1 left off. And what Thad covered last week was a parenthetical statement about paying closer attention to what we're hearing so we don't drift away. But he picks up where he left off in chapter 1, where he's talking about angels as God's servants and ministers of fire, that they're servants of those who are inheriting salvation. They're servants of the saved. And then here in verse 5, he's picking that up. And he says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're talking. Uh, It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, um, all of this about the creation of man. In other words, he's saying it's not to angels that it was, that are going to rule in the world to come. It's been testified about mankind and about that as a prophecy then of Jesus who we now see crowned with glory and honor. It is not to angels that the world will be subjected. But he walks us through Psalm 8. First, understanding it is our creation, but second, understanding it is a description of incarnation, the coming of Jesus. The Jews of Jesus' time had a robust belief in the importance of angels. Angels were a big part of their thinking. In many ways, they still can be and should be for us. They saw the angels as mediators of God's word. And there are many times in the Old Testament where an angel of the Lord shows up to deliver messages in God's word. And so they are these literally messengers from God, mediating God's word. There are ways that they administered the creation and that they were lords. They were angels that had... Uh, responsibilities in creation. We see stories of Michael being sent in his power and, and, and being buffeted and fighting with the enemy as he is carrying out God's purposes in the world. And so they see the angels. And so there were some in those days, uh, particularly I was reading one commentary that talked about the Qumran community where we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they not only had copies of Old Testament scriptures uh, so that we, you know, at the time of Jesus have contemporary Hebrew uh, text, Old Testament scriptures, but they had a lot of other texts, and they had messianic expectations and things that they were saying, and one of them was that there were some messianic figures that they imagined being subjected to angels, Michael the archangel. So they have these ideas, 
as they think about the mediator, the, the, the Messiah, and they don't have a clear idea of how it's going to happen. And nobody really did. Jesus is a surprise to pretty much everybody. In a sense that he is the long-for Messiah, but he was not the Messiah everybody was expecting. They did not expect God to come. And they did not expect him to save his people the way that he did. And so the author here is trying to communicate to these Hebrew Christians. It's called, you know, they're, they're Jewish believers, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. And, and he's trying to communicate to them the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is, there is one who is greater than the angels. They couldn't imagine. They didn't understand. There were the angels and they thought Messiah would be another man who would lead a political victory and bring Israel to the height of its power and its kingdom. And that angels were always over that. They did not understand what it meant for Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, to take flesh. And so in verses 6 to 8, he takes us back into Psalm chapter 8. In verses 6 to 8, or Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. And he speaks, as what I just read a moment ago, of the vastness of the universe. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him, mankind, Adam and Eve, the human race. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him in your own image and breathed in him the breath of life, of spiritual life, with the ability to know and to love and to reflect their God and their creator. You've crowned him with this glory and honor. and You've put everything in subjection. You gave him dominion over the creation that you made. Glory of our creation in God's image as his vice regents. He's really just expositing Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let's crown him with glory and honor. In, in, in our image, in, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens. And it goes on, the extent of their dominion. And this is what the psalmist is, is, is remembering and celebrating and talking his way through in this psalm as a psalm of worship. Of what God has done, not only in, in the glory of the heavens that he has created, but man that he's crowned with glory. And so the author celebrates this, but at the same time he reminds us, the author of Hebrews, after celebrating Psalm 8, what it does, reminds us that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That the dominion of man is not all that it was supposed to be. That there is a brokenness in creation, that the purpose of creation has been derailed by sin. We do not see the full dominion entrusted to mankind being exercised. And so in the end of verse 8, when he finishes quoting the psalm, he goes on to say, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Right? The the dominion was a full vice regents of God on the earth, but at present, right now, the way things are, we do not see everything in subjection to him. It is not the way that it's supposed to be. Mankind has not fulfilled its purpose. He has fallen from his purpose. The image of God in him was broken, was marred, was smashed. His dominion was forfeited to, I think Paul says in one of the the scriptures that the the world lies under the power of the evil one. That in, in the deception man gave away dominion and there are so many ways. Just look outside our doors and what's going on in our world and say who... 
is exercising some dominion right now over the course of the world. It's not in any way to diminish God's sovereignty in the way that he has allowed that to happen. And he is allowing all of this even as he works his redemption in Christ. Because what he goes from there to say is we don't see this in the end of verse 8. We don't see everything in subjection to him. But what do we see? Right? Verse 9 he says, but what we see, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Right? So it's not just you and I that were created a little lower than the angels in human flesh, in humanity, in the image of God. But Jesus himself took a body and he too, for a little while, was created lower than the angels. We see Jesus incarnate in our human nature, in our humanity, in our flesh. The creator and sustainer of all things. If you remember the first sermon coming out of Hebrews chapter 1 in the first few verses, this one who is the creator of the world, the sustainer of all that has been made. The radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, one before whom angels veil their faces. We see him now created a little lower than the angels. We see him incarnate for us and for our salvation. God in human flesh, for a time, he comes as the second Adam. Or the last Adam. He bears our humanity and he is Adam as Adam was supposed to be. Human, hu- human is we're supposed to be human. Right? He came and took our flesh to live the life that we failed to live. He came to fulfill all righteousness. To love God with all of his soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He came to do for us what we failed to do for ourselves. Which is to be human in the image of God. Unbroken. The second Adam was created for a little while. Lower than the angels, we see Jesus. See, you and I were made a little lower than the angels, and that was our glory. But when Jesus is made a little lower than the angels, that is his humiliation. Right? The creator and the sustainer, the radiance of God's glory, the, the one in whom all things consist, by whom and for whom and through whom all things are made, for him to take flesh is to condescend, right? He stoops to our humanity. He, he comes down. It says that he lays aside his glory. He makes himself nothing. He, he lays aside and veils his glory that he might take our human nature. He, he comes close in our nature. He becomes one of us. He chose. You and I didn't choose it. Our humanity. But he chose it. He chose to come. He chose to suffer and die. He chose to redeem us. And so the scripture says he is, because he suffered, he is crowned with glory and honor. Because he suffered. Right? That's what verse 9 says. We see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see Jesus crowned on the throne. And so the world to come, I believe in that verse there and in a hundred other verses in the New Testament, it is telling us that Jesus already reigns over the world to come. Right? It's not angels who are going to 
have the world come subjected to them. Jesus Christ is already crowned and reigning over that life which is to come. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, which I think does have a picture of the exaltation and ascension of Christ. It says, There came one like the Son of Man, and he came before the ancients of days. One like a Son of Man, like a human being, one in, in our nature came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages will serve him. His dominion the one that we forfeited, the one that we don't see right now, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And it will never end. He's saying Jesus is king already. He has been given dominion of every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. He reigns. Raymond Brown, a commentator I was reading, he said, the world to come is the totally new world order which has already begun in Christ. It has already begun. We've talked many times from this pulpit about the already and the not yet. That He already is risen. He's already reigning. He's already king. He has already done all that is necessary for salvation. It is already, but He has not yet come in its full consummation to bring all things under when the knowledge of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That day is coming. But He's already reigning. And we await the consummation. But He's already crowned with glory and honor. And I want us to see that He is that he's crowned this way not just for Himself. It's one, of the, it is, it is the, it's one of those things that we have to pray that we could see these things in a way that the power of truth would touch us, would shape us, and would help us to live in light of them, a life that is responsive to the glory of Christ and what he has done for us in our humanity. Because the truth is he is crowned now with glory and honor, not just for himself, Because he is crowned right now, the Lord Jesus in heaven is crowned as king at the right hand of the Father in our humanity. He still bears his humanity. The grave was empty. Why? Because his humanity was raised and glorified and in our humanity, glorified and perfected, he now reigns over the universe and the world that is to come and the day of its consummation awaits, but he does it in our human nature. He took on flesh for us. He lived as a man for us. He fulfilled all law and righteousness for us. He died. He suffered death, it says, for us and for our salvation. He died and rose and he conquered death for us. And so the focus for the author in this particular text is, as Thad said, is not so much about what we're saved from as what we're saved to. And the focus of the text is what we see is Jesus crowned in glory and honor in our humanity. And that is our future. In Christ. As we are in Christ by faith now. It says on that day he will come for us. And we will see him as he is and we will be like him. And it will not be angels who reign over the world to come. Reverting to verse 5. But it will be King Jesus and his people. 
Jesus says at one point, or Paul, I think it is, says at one point, do you not know that you will judge angels? That you will, that you will judge them? They will not judge you. The world will not be subjected to angels. It actually will be subjected to you again. Dominion will be returned. The purpose of our creation in the image of God, me and vice regents and given dominion of the earth, is restored in Christ, and us in Christ are restored to that dominion. Fallen human nature is not going to be returned to that place that is a little lower than the angels. Because it is raised with Christ. And it is now crowned with glory and honor. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, people in the world are looking for purpose. They're looking for a reason. They're looking inside. They're looking in all the wrong places. Trying to get a reason and an understanding to define their reality. Everybody wants a purpose, but what the Scripture shows us, what the Scripture paints for us, the purpose of our creation and the hope of what God has made us for is so far beyond the dirt that we're rolling around in. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no greater purpose is conceivable than the purpose of God for men and women in Jesus Christ, which is to raise them from the degradation and fall of sin to the glory that He is preparing for them. The Gospel speaks of a world to come According to his plan and purpose, all who are in Christ are going to reign in that world. Even as I was preparing this this week, I just, you just, I sit back in my chair and I try to understand what that means. Not just for the world to come, but right now. How does this equip me? How does this affect me? How does this change me? What does it do for me? If this is true, if we believe this, then our purpose is so exalted that it should change everything. We live in in light of that day. And not for our momentary feelings. See, this has already begun. There is a very real sense in which we are united to Christ. It says we were united to Him in His death. We were united to Him in His burial. We were united to Him in His resurrection. And it also says this in Ephesians 2.6, He has raised us up with Him and He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now. And how does that change the way I think about my life and the way that we live? If this is, in a sense, in Christ where, where we sit now and where we will sit in eternity to come, what does it do? Who are you? And begin to live in light of that identity. We await the consummation, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, bearing our humanity, restoring our dominion, remaking us even now through a sanctification into the image of God, into His own image, that we may be like Jesus, we date for the day of His return and the day of His power. But while we wait, our King reigns over our souls. We trust Him. And we obey Him. And we serve Him.
But we can't miss that his path to glory was through the cross. Right in verse 9, he says that he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Because of what he did for us. Right? And this is Ephesians 2 where he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He does all of this. He suffers the humiliation even of death on a cross. And therefore has God highly exalted him. And given him a name that is above every name. He is the Lord. And we, miss, we, we cannot miss that it is through this path of suffering. And it says that he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he would taste death for everyone. In other words, he didn't do it for himself. The path to glory in bringing our humanity with him was to bring our humanity first through his suffering. And he says he did it. He suffered death so that he would have tasted death for every one of us. He did it not for himself. He did it for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son by grace. So by grace. No law can save us. There's no angel that's going to save us. There's no righteousness of our own that can save us from ourselves. Only Jesus, in our place, suffering our death, tasting death for us, and then rising and reigning, saving us. In many ways, just to accept Jesus as Savior means to believe and to receive Him as your substitute, as the one who tasted death for you. That He was in your place that he bore your debt, that he paid your price, that he suffered for your sins to believe and to receive and to accept him is that he is your substitute, the one who did it for you. And it says he tasted death for every one, I believe, everyone who believes. I think the context is clear, just to say quickly, that I don't, he's not talking about a universal salvation. Some would say, well, he tasted death for everyone, so everybody is saved. And there's a logic to that. <laughs> but I don't think it's a universal salvation or even a universal redemption. The word pantos, as he ends here, when he says he tasted death, the very last word of the, of the verse, for every, the word pantos, it just stands there. He tasted death for every, pantos. For every, every one it can be. But how do you know what everyone means, right? It's, that's a word that's always, always uh, qualified by the context that you use it in. How many times when you use the word everyone, do you mean every human being that ever lived or is alive right now? I would, it's probably rare, right? How often do you mean that when you say that? If I were to tell you, look, we're having lunch after church, I'm going to tell you, everybody, we're going to all go out to lunch together. And I'm, I'm paying for everyone. We're not, by the way. This is a rhetorical illustration. But my point is, how many of you heard, wow, Robert is buying lunch for every human being. That is amazing. How does he even have that much money? How much are we paying him anyway? 
Every human, that's not what you hear. What you hear in a context. It's always in a context. It's always in a context. It has to be. You only understand what everyone means in a context. And so it is distributive in that sense, meaning it, it denotes every individual of a certain class or a certain group. You know, we're going to do this for everyone. You know, everyone has to turn on their paper Friday. All of us? You know, like, no, 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 no. Just the class. It's everyone. So context, verse 10. It's fitting that the one for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. So he takes the death for the many sons he's bringing to glory. Or in verse 11, who sanctifies those who are sanctified. All have the same source. So those who are being sanctified by him. He's not ashamed. Verse 12, I tell you of your name to my brothers. It's my brothers for whom he dies. Or in verse 13, he says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, the children I and the children that God gave me. Right? He tasted death for every one of the children that God has given me. The context that he gives, that all of Scripture gives, over and over again. Whether it's in Ephesians 5, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or in John chapter 10, 15, where he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. In John chapter 10, he's talking to a bunch of goats. People who don't believe. People who are rejecting him. People who are criticizing. People who are out to get him. And he talks about the sheep and the goats. And he talks about the sheep. And he says this, I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? My sheep know my name. My sheep follow me. Not the goats, but my sheep. They know, my, they know me and they follow me. And I give myself, I lay my life down for them. And he says again later in John chapter 10, verse 29, and he's still talking about the sheep, and he says this, my father who has given them the sheep to me. It's the same language he uses here as he quotes the psalm, behold, I and the children that God has given to me. And my point is this, all that Jesus did, all that he suffered, his humiliation, his death, even his exaltation, and his crowning and his reigning, he did it for all of us who believe. His brothers who are being sanctified. Those whom the Father has given to him and who are here this morning and gathered around the world worshiping him. The author is writing to Jewish Christians who are tempted to fall away. They're, they're struggling to trust in Christ alone. And they're looking to fall back. That he is not all sufficient to cover their sin. They, they go back to the law and, and back to circumcision or back to whatever it is that they, they think will make them right. They will help them to stand. And Jesus and, and the, the author of Hebrews tells them, don't drift away. From what? From the, what you have heard. That he's telling them right now. He said in verse 1, don't drift away. From what? What I'm telling you, Christ is greater than the angels. He's greater than everything before he's done here. He has fulfilled it all. Christ in Christ alone is our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. That's what's happening in the book of Hebrews. Writing to Jewish Christians, and they're finding it again to be a stumbling block. Christ and Him crucified, He who suffered death and tasted death for everyone. And that is sufficient, that is enough, that is it, that is everything. We see Jesus already crowned, already conquered death, already victorious, 
already taken our humanity and exalted it. We see him and him alone. And when we take our eyes off of him, the trouble begins. My friends, the crux of the passage is to turn our eyes off of ourselves and to look to the all-sufficiency of Jesus. We live under the constant temptation to drift away. That's what he's writing about. But it's not just these guys. If there's anything that the church in modern America deals with, it is the temptation to drift away. And the harder things get outside, the stormier the seas, the more the temptation is to be tossed to and fro and to drift from our mooring that is in Christ, to look to our all-sufficiency in Christ. And so we live under this temptation to trust in the wrong things, to look to the wrong things, to hope in the wrong things. And we sometimes trust in ourselves that we're doing the right things, that I have the right politics, and I have the right theology, and I've said the right prayer. And we just trust in ourselves and things in ourselves. And he says, we see Jesus. Nowhere in here does it say, I see myself (laughs) doing pretty well. Over and against those out there. Which may be true by the grace of God but only by the grace of God, as he tells us even here. We need to see Jesus crowned with glory. We need to see him, and we need to keep seeing him. We need to keep looking to Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on him. In uh, Hebrews chapter 12, the verse that everybody knows where it talks about, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run. Right, let us be free of ourselves and of our sin. Lay aside every weight and every sin. Free of our sin and ourselves so we can run. Right, the race with endurance. The picture of a marathon runner who has the race in front of him. The race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Right, who is crowned in glory and honor, looking and seeing and to keep looking. The founder and the perfecter of our faith who is seated at the right hand of the throne. That's in Romans 12 as he gets down to apply the entire book. This is the point. Looking to Jesus. We see Jesus seated. Like a marathon runner not looking to the left or the right. He does not give up. He does not drift off course. He does not turn back. But with his eye on the prize... He runs, and he just keeps on running. My friends, you and I, who are in the faith, we stand counter to our culture now more than ever. In America, you see the drift in the direction away from many of our country's moorings. We stand in a culture that is adrift, and the more it drifts, the more the temptation for us to go with them. And the pressure is great. The world is looking inside themselves. They're looking inside themselves to define reality, to define biology even, to define morality. They're looking for happiness and they're looking inside. They're looking inside. Who are they? How do I realize myself? Right? They, it is entirely subjective and self-focused. Their God is their feelings. What do you feel? Well, that's your truth. No matter whatever objective thing gets in the way, We don't look in. We look out. We look up. We see Jesus. We see Jesus crowned in glory and honor. And we lay aside every weight and sin that would encumber us and we run. We run to Jesus. We see Him. In our lives, this is how they are spent. We look to Jesus. It's time to stand strong and to not drift 
from truth, from holiness that is in Jesus Christ. We must pay, we must pay closer attention to the truth so that we don't drift away. We see Jesus, Savior crowned in glory. We fix our eyes. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross, and we follow Jesus. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. Oh, may you write it on our souls, not just as information that we have gathered today, but may the power of the truth take hold of our souls. May our eyes be filled with a vision of Jesus crowned in his glory. May it shape the way we run every day, that we may not drift away, that our hearts may not be hardened by sin, but that we would walk with Jesus more and more like him every day to the glory of his name. And in his name we pray, amen.